may be seated. The temptation to read stories in the Bible as though they were allegories has been strong throughout church history. When we read a historical narrative, whether in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, it's tempting to put an allegorical spin on what we read. By and large, I think this is generally motivated by a right belief and a good desire. The right belief is that we believe that the stories of the Bible are written for our benefit. They ought to do us some good. Paul expresses this right belief in Romans 15, 4. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. This right belief then fuels a good desire. We want to apply the Bible to our everyday lives, our day-to-day circumstances. If the stories of the Bible are going to actually bring encouragement, then they can't be merely history lessons, right? Surely they can't be just telling us what happened once upon a time, right? So one of the ways we might pursue the application of a Bible story is by allegorizing its details. Let's take a familiar story as an example so you can see what I'm talking about. Let's take the story of David and Goliath as found in 1 Samuel 17. Without reviewing all the details of the story, we have a tendency to allegorize that story by saying the giant Goliath represents any giant that you might face in your life, any big struggle or challenge that you need to overcome. The giants of life might be a health crisis or a difficult person in your life or some besetting sin. Whatever in your life seems to be standing in the way of you achieving your goals or reaching your dreams or, if we spiritualize it, standing in the way of your spiritual maturity. You've got to trust the Lord like David in order to conquer the giants. Or, from our passage today, we're going to look at Peter getting out of the boat and briefly walking on the water toward Jesus. But when he takes his eyes off of Jesus and looks at the storm, he begins to sink. Should we see the strong wind as the storms of life? And again, allegorize the storm as any challenge or obstacle that we face in our life. Or, for many throughout church history, Peter shouldn't have gotten out of the boat in the first place. He was being presumptuous. We readers are then to allegorize the story so that the boat represents the church and recognize that the safest place for Christians to be is in the church to venture out to do great things for God apart from the church is folly and doomed to failure. Or let me press this point a bit further. 
The tendency to allegorize has taken an interesting but predictable turn in recent years. When we read the stories of the Bible, we have a tendency to read ourselves into them. So not only do we allegorize certain details of the story, but we tend to make the stories of the Bible about us. A word for this is Narcissus. Narcissus. No. Looking at the broad landscape of preaching today in this country, I'd say that this has become the most common approach to the story of David and Goliath. Narcissus is a distortion of the word exegesis. The word exegesis literally refers to drawing something out of something else. Applied to reading, and especially reading the Bible, exegesis refers to drawing the meaning of a text out of the text. The opposite of exegesis is eisegesis, which literally means putting something into something else. Applied to reading, and especially reading of the Bible, eisegesis refers to forcing a meaning into the text of Scripture that the author never intended. Narcissus, then, is introducing the idea of narcissism into our reading of the Bible. It is to inappropriately read myself into the story as though I were the hero or the main character. So what does this look like? I am David. If I allegorize Goliath to represent the giants of life, the hard things in my life, then I must be like David. I must do what David did in order to overcome the things in my life that are too big for me. Is that what the story in 1 Samuel 17 is about? Did the author of 1 Samuel intend for his readers to make those interpretive moves when they read that story? Is that what God wants us to learn from that story. Likewise, we can ask about this story in the Gospel of Matthew. Does Matthew want us to all be like Peter, at least when he first got out of the boat? Is Peter's faltering glance at the wind a cautionary tale, a warning for future disciples of Jesus about being overly troubled and distracted by the storms of life? Is this what God wants us to learn from this story? When we read this story, is the lesson to be summarized, if you want to walk on water, you got to get out of the boat. Now, at the same time, I want to say that there are true and right things about pretty much everything I've just critiqued. We sang the song Oceans this morning, and I sang it just as wholeheartedly as anyone else here did can allow a little bit more poetic license in a song that we sing than in the exposition of the Scriptures. But what I'm seeking to address here is to keep the main thing the main thing, making sure that secondary things don't overshadow the main focus of this particular story. If you think the Bible is about you, let me gently correct you. If you glance at your sermon outline in the bulletin, you can see pretty quickly who this story is about. It's about Jesus. 
Yes, of course, Peter and the disciples are there too. But the message that God and Matthew wants us to take away from this passage and all the other passages of this gospel is about Jesus. I'll show you how Matthew makes that really clear at the very point where we're tempted to shift our attention to Peter. But beyond that, let me just say, the Bible is about Jesus. That's how Jesus read his Old Testament. As Sally Lloyd-Jones summarizes it as the subtitle to her poetically rich Jesus storybook Bible for young children, every story whispers his name. So let's see how this story in the Gospel of Matthew doesn't just whisper his name, but shouts it loud, clear, and in bold print to mix my metaphors. So recall the context, Matthew chapter 14. After Jesus learned of John the Baptist's murder, he sought to get away from the crowds and be alone, but that doesn't happen. The crowds catch up with him, and he compassionately and miraculously fed thousands of people. We pick up the story in Matthew 14, verses 22 to 24, where Jesus is sending his disciples into a storm. Matthew 14, 22 to 24. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. So the disciples have their 12 baskets of leftovers from the great banquet, and Jesus forces them to go off by themselves. The word the ESV translates as made is very forceful. Jesus compelled them, drove them to do something they really didn't want to do. They apparently wanted to stick around, and Matthew may imply that they put up a bit of an argument Why does Jesus so forcefully insist that they must leave ahead of him? The reason Matthew highlights is that Jesus still wants to be alone. But from John's gospel, we might see another reason. In John 6.15, talking about this same situation, we read, Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Jesus doesn't want his disciples to get caught up in the crowd's confused enthusiasm. The political agenda of the crowds to crown Jesus king, most likely so that he might lead them in rebellion against the Romans, is not the agenda of the heavenly kingdom Jesus is establishing on the earth. So he separates his disciples from the crowds while he successfully sends the crowds home. Jesus travels up a mountain to be truly alone so that he might pray. From the passage last week, we might see a hint that his desire to pray alone was prompted particularly by news of John the Baptist's murder. This surely got him thinking not only about the loss of his cousin, his friend and forerunner, John, but also his own murder. Looming on the horizon is surely on his own mind as well. Jesus understands his father's plans for him, 
And those plans include his cruel crucifixion. So he withdraws from the crowds, and he sends his disciples out on the Sea of Galilee, and he takes some time to commune with his heavenly Father for hours into the night. Jesus' long day of ministry now stretches into a long night of extended prayer. And then Matthew updates us on the status of the disciples in the boat. Their boat is being hammered by the waves, driven by the wind. John 6.19 tells us more precisely that they've made it three or four miles on their journey. Now at this point, I want to draw your attention to a detail in this story that's different from the story of Jesus calming the storm on the Sea of Galilee in chapter 8 of Matthew. Back in chapter 8, we had read about an earthquake on the sea. The waves were described there as swamping the boat. And the disciples, in that case, feared for their lives. They believed they were going to die. That is not the case in this story. They are being beaten backward by the wind, but the disciples do not appear to be in a life-threatening situation. They're having a hard time getting to their destination, but they apparently do not believe they're going to die. Noticing this makes what happens next all the more remarkable. Consider Jesus' stroll on the sea in verses 25 to 27. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost! And they cried out in fear. But immediately, Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Jesus has gotten some solid alone time with his heavenly Father. He had gone up the mountain at evening, which would have been around 6 p.m. Now, he heads down the mountain for a stroll on the sea at the fourth watch of the night, which would have been the three-hour period from 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. Thus, we can conclude that Jesus spent around nine hours on the mountain. Now, the text doesn't say that he was praying all that time. But he might have been. Or perhaps he lay down and got some sleep as well. But Mark 6.48 tells us that he saw that the disciples were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. From his high elevation, Jesus can spot their boat way out on the Sea of Galilee, nearly four miles offshore. And he can tell they're having a hard time. They've been rowing for just about the same number of hours that Jesus has been on the mountain. With normal conditions, they should have made it across the sea long ago. Jesus sees their trouble and decides to go help. But how would he help them? Couldn't he have told the wind to stop blowing against them? Back in chapter 8, he said the word, stop, and a wild storm abruptly stopped. Perhaps if he had done that, being so far away, the disciples wouldn't have known that it was him who made it stop. But let's remember, Jesus sent the disciples ahead without him. He remained all this time on the mountain, probably fully aware that the disciples were going to have trouble. Now, the stage is set 
for Jesus to even more vividly display his identity to the disciples. Jesus descends the mountain, and then he does what God does. Job describes God in Job 9.8 as the one who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. Only God walks on water. Now, Job is speaking poetically, figuratively, of God's acts in creation. In Genesis, we read about God merely speaking to separate the waters, to rearrange them and distribute them where he wanted them to be. But Job depicts this dramatically as God stomping on the seas in order to get them in just the right places. Jesus steps out on the Sea of Galilee and his fully human body doesn't sink. Matthew describes this in the simplest, most matter-of-fact terms. He came to them walking on the sea. And recall that the disciples' boat is about four miles from shore at this point. So for Jesus to get to them... He's going to have a four-mile walk ahead of him. Assuming he didn't run or otherwise miraculously teleport, Matthew says walking, assuming Jesus took a normalish human pace for walking, it would have taken Jesus about an hour to get to them. He's not in a hurry, rushing out to save them. In verse 26, we get the disciples' reaction to catching sight of Jesus out there on the sea. They freak out. They've been rowing all night long. They're surely exhausted. The wind is still blowing aggressively against them, and the water is probably spraying up in their faces. Their lanterns are perhaps casting interesting shadows all around. And now their weary eyes see something they've only maybe seen in their nightmares. A man coming near to their boat, walking on the Sea of Galilee. Their only possible conclusion, it must be a ghost or a deceiving spirit come to haunt and to hurt them. Jewish superstition promoted strange ideas about what happened to people who died at sea. Some believed their spirits were trapped out there and couldn't descend to Hades like they were supposed to. Others recognized the connection between the sea and Sheol in the Old Testament and believed that the sea might be the gateway between the earth and the realm of the dead. And therefore, the sea was a place where spirits might sneak out of Sheol temporarily. Or... Because of the untamable power of the sea and its association with evil, many believe that demons either came from the sea or like to hang out there, tormenting and terrifying sailors. The disciples scream at the top of their lungs, completely overwhelmed by terror. Notice also that at this point, as far as we know, the disciples have not been afraid. The windstorm they're facing is not like the earthquake on the sea from back in chapter 8. In that situation, they were terrified by the storm. Here, they're terrified by Jesus. 
But then Jesus speaks. Surely Jesus would have had to raise his voice to be heard above the disciples screaming and the raging windstorm. Jesus makes three rapid-fire statements. The first and the last words, he says, are commands intended to strengthen the disciples. And we'll come back to them in just a moment. But what he says in the middle is most important. Jesus is out here walking on the sea, doing what God does, and now he claims God's name. Why shouldn't the disciples be afraid? Because Jesus is there, and Jesus is God. Our English translations usually have something like, It is I, and that is a fair translation of the phrase. The Greek phrase reflects the normal way someone knocking at your door might respond to the question, Who is it? But Jesus is not knocking on the disciples' door here. He's walking on the sea to come to save his disciples from their trouble. They probably wouldn't have picked up on the significance in the moment. Their emotions are too heightened. The fear is too controlling. But later, in hindsight, they connect the walking on the water to the words Jesus says, and they can hear the echo of Exodus 3.14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Jesus identifies himself here as the great I am. And Jesus calms the disciples. This central identification is what the command not to fear is based on. The reason the disciples can and should take heart and not be afraid is because Jesus The great I am has come to be with them. The wind is still howling, and they're still not making the progress they want to make across the sea. But Jesus is there. God is with them. Emmanuel. Later reflection would take the disciples to another Old Testament passage where God's name, I am, is connected with commands for God's people not to be afraid. Consider a few verses from Isaiah 43. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. For I am Yahweh, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. And then down in verse 5. Fear not, for I am am with you. We are commanded not to fear repeatedly in the Bible, but it is not because fear is always irrational. It is not because fear is inappropriate in a threatening situation. We are commanded not to fear because God is with us. However, in this case, (laughs) the disciples' fear was irrational. They were afraid Because they thought that the figure walking on the sea was a ghost or a spirit. They were afraid because they didn't recognize Jesus. They couldn't see that he was coming to them as God. He was coming to help them, to save them. Now, interestingly, 
Mark's gospel tells us that Jesus intended to pass by them. Since this sermon is not expounding that passage in Mark 6, I won't go into all the wonderful Old Testament background that phrase has, but I will just suggest that had the disciples not reacted with fear, with terror at Jesus' approach, he would have continued walking to the shore where they were heading, and he might have caused the wind to stop blowing against the boat so that the disciples could get on over to the other side. And in that case, we would never have had the episode of Peter walking on the water. Nevertheless, here we can see that Jesus responds to their fear by coming to them, coming close to them. From verse 27, our passage takes an interesting shift. I don't know if you noticed, but this is the first verse in this passage that uses the name Jesus. From verses 27 to 33, we're going to see Jesus identified by his name or by a title for God seven times. I don't think that's an accident. At the very place where our focus tends to shift to Peter, Matthew is essentially yelling at us to look at Jesus instead. So consider how Jesus saves doubting disciples in verses 28 to 31. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? Though Matthew, Mark, and John all tell the story of Jesus walking on the water, only Matthew mentions this confrontation between Jesus and Peter. So we've got to consider what unique message does Matthew want to communicate by including this episode. As I mentioned earlier, this aspect of the story is where many allegorical approaches go wrong. One immediate red flag I see in that approach is that throughout church history... Preachers and commentators have drawn the opposite moral lessons from Peter's actions. Some emphasize the message, be like Peter. He got out of the boat when all the other disciples were too cowardly to risk something hard for God. At least he tried. But others emphasize the message, don't be like Peter. He took his eyes off Jesus. He was clearly presumptuous and prideful in attempting something only appropriate for God. Both of these approaches miss Matthew's point. Let's try to read this freshly, as though we weren't overly familiar with the story. Jesus has just commanded the disciples not to be afraid, revealing himself as God in the flesh. Peter's response is not great. Well, it starts off right. He addresses the one speaking as Lord... So far, so good. But it's that next word that should trouble us. If. Jesus' human voice, the voice Peter and the disciples were so familiar with, just identified himself and 
as they had heard him so often do with themselves and others, instructed them not to be afraid. So is Peter asking for a sign here? Is Peter saying, prove you are who you say you are? Sure seems that way to me. Recall how similar Peter's words sound to Satan's words in Matthew 4. If you are the Son of God. In Matthew 16, Jesus will compare Peter to Satan. And perhaps here, we are already seeing some satanic thinking on Peter's part. Well, the sign Peter requests is interesting. He doesn't ask the Lord to stop the wind. That's probably what I would have wanted. He also doesn't ask for the Lord to promise that he won't sink. He instead suggests that God in the flesh should command his human subject to do something only God can do. What an interesting idea. If we stop there, it's hard not to see this as presumptuous and inappropriate. But then Jesus invites him out. And Peter actually does it. (laughs) I wonder if that's what Peter was expecting. Get the logic here of Peter's question and response in all of this. If Jesus actually does command Peter to walk on the water, and then Peter's actually able to walk on the water, then that demonstrates the reality that Jesus really is the one who's speaking. That's the logic in Peter's mind. Peter certainly seems to have a basic understanding of how God enables obedience in his followers. But then he falters just before he reaches Jesus. And how many steps did he take, I wonder? How far away did he have to go? But just before he reaches Jesus, he saw the wind. That is, he saw the effects of the wind, and he returned to his fear. Whereas earlier, when Peter was in the boat... He was afraid of the ghostly figure out on the water. But now that he's standing on the water, he becomes fearful of the wind. While he was in the boat, he was not afraid of the wind. But now, standing on the water, he's afraid of that same wind. What's the difference? Well, it comes down to faith, as we'll see in just a moment. He was secure in the boat. He felt secure in the boat. He trusted in the boat to keep him safe. Even if the wind prevented him from getting where he was trying to go, now that he's out of the boat, as he started walking on the water, he was looking to Jesus. He was trusting Jesus. But when he begins to fear, he begins to sink like a rock. As he sinks, and I don't imagine him sinking slowly, he yells out to Jesus, And this time there's no if. He's gone from Lord command me to Lord save me. And I wonder if this movement is what Jesus intended in agreeing to Peter's absurd request. Come on, Peter. Here's an opportunity for you to learn that only faith in me can enable true obedience to me. But more than this, Jesus has another opportunity to demonstrate his saving power. As Peter sinks, Jesus immediately reaches out his hand and seizes him, pulling him up out of the water. Did Jesus carry Peter back to the boat? 
Matthew doesn't say. But what Matthew does tell us is what Jesus said to him. Jesus immediately rebukes Peter. He saves him before he scolds him. But we need to attend to Jesus' rebuke here. Whereas in chapter 8, Jesus had rebuked the wind and the seas. Here he rebukes Peter. He didn't commend Peter for taking those steps. Instead, he chastised him for his lack of faith and his doubt. Now, we've got to pay close attention so we don't misunderstand what's going on here. Jesus rebukes Peter for his little faith and his doubt, not his fear. What is Jesus talking about? When did Peter express doubt? Go back to the word if in verse 28. Maybe Jesus allowed Peter to come out on the waters because he wanted a private word with him. When Jesus spoke to the disciples from the waters, saying, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid, they should have believed his word. They should have taken him at his word. But Peter, representative of the disciples, was not convinced it really was Jesus. The word doubt describes what we might call having second thoughts. It's a word for doubling. Peter was of two minds about whether the voice he just heard was really Jesus or not. This is little faith on display. Jesus chastises the disciples for being little faith people repeatedly in Matthew's gospel. Peter's attempt to obey Jesus, to attempt to come to Jesus with some uncertainty in his mind about whether it's really Jesus or not, is doomed to failure. But Peter's obedience and success is not what this passage is about. It's about Jesus coming to save doubting disciples. Even as Peter's faith faltered, he cried out, Lord, save me! And Jesus saved him. The story is meant to move you and me to trust Jesus, to save us. Walking on water is not something we should aspire to as Christians. Remember Paul, shipwrecked at sea many times. He never seemed to consider walking on the water as a legitimate solution. Walking on water is not to be allegorized for attempting hard things for God, taking big risks for God, although we may do those things at times. This story is not presenting us with an example to follow or an example to avoid. This story is showing us our Savior and encouraging us to trust Him. But don't don't miss the encouragement here. He saves Peter when Peter took his eyes off Jesus. Commentator Daniel Doriani presses the point home this way. Peter took his eyes off of Jesus, but Jesus never took his eyes off of Peter. Peter was safe when he took his eyes off of Jesus because Jesus kept watch over Peter. Doriani also says, Matthew's message is not, Peter failed, do not be like Peter. No, the passage teaches that Peter's failure did not bring catastrophe. Because Jesus did not fail Peter. Can I add to that? Jesus will not fail you, struggling Christian. Your doubt, 
your fear, your little faith is not an obstacle to Jesus. Your doubt, your fear, your little faith is not hindering Jesus from accomplishing the great work of salvation. His grace is greater than your fears. His power more than compensates for your weakness. Where does Matthew take us from here? The storm stops, and Jesus is rightly worshipped as God. Look at verses 32 and 33. And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. Matthew doesn't describe this the way he described the event in chapter 8. There, Jesus rebuked the wind and the sea, and then there was calm silence. Here, Jesus and Peter got into the boat, and the wind just stops, seemingly of its own accord. One writer suggests that the storm acts out of respect for him. We don't know how far away from the boat Jesus and Peter were when they had their conversation. Maybe Matthew himself was close enough to hear it. Maybe Peter told them about it later. Nevertheless, once they get in the boat, once the wind stopped blowing against them, all the disciples responded by getting down on their knees and worshiping Jesus. After Jesus rebuked the storm in Matthew 8, the disciples asked the question, What sort of man is this? Well, now they seem to get it. Jesus had identified himself as the great I am out on the sea, and here they respond with worship. What sort of man commands the wind and the seas and they obey him? Who walks on the sea? Jesus must be the Son of God, worthy of worship and praise due to the sovereign God of the universe. When Satan tempted Jesus by offering him all the kingdoms of the world, the price Satan said he would accept would be that Jesus would worship him. Jesus responded by quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And here, Jesus accepts that worship for himself by the disciples. They are not violating Deuteronomy 6.13 by worshiping Him. Here in Matthew 14, we see the fourth occasion out of seven that Matthew records of people worshiping Jesus. Matthew has purposely placed this event near the center of his gospel and at the very center of a series of seven occasions where Jesus is worshipped. And this is the first time his disciples worship him. It's also the first time that the disciples call Jesus the Son of God. The Father has referred to him as his Son, Demons have called him that, and Matthew has certainly indicated that in his narrative in certain ways. But this is the first time the disciples have recognized it and said so. Matthew has written his gospel largely to communicate that Jesus is the Son of God. And the disciples climactically worshiping Jesus and ascribing that title to him right here is amazing. It really is all about Jesus. Well, finally, the boat arrives at land. 
tent at Gennesaret, and Jesus will save some sick people. Look at verses 34 to 36. And when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Gennesaret is not far from Capernaum, where Jesus has essentially had his ministry headquarters. Thus, stories of his healings and miracles have spread, and people from the surrounding area flock to him. For his disciples, this must be the very last thing they want. They need sleep. They've had an exhausting, stressful, sleepless night. Jesus may not have slept the previous night either. Nevertheless, here come the sick and the needy, and Jesus' compassion continues flowing freely. Word had even spread about the way the bleeding woman had been healed, which we read about in Matthew chapter 9. She tried to sneak among the crowds to get healed of her disease, believing that if she only touched the tassels hanging from Jesus' clothes, she would be healed. As her story spread, people zoomed in on the mechanism the touching of the tassels, and people approach Jesus to be healed that way. As with doubting Peter and with the bleeding woman, Jesus responds to them in their mixed-up, superstition-blended faith. The word Matthew chooses to describe their being made well is interesting. It is a salvation word, but not the normal one. It is often used to describe something or someone being brought safely through from one place to another, implying some danger along the way. For example, when Paul was being transported to Rome on a ship, their ship struck a reef. The centurion in charge heard that the other soldiers wanted to kill all the prisoners so that none would escape at sea, but he wanted to ensure that Paul would make it to Rome, so he prevented the soldiers from killing the prisoners, and he got them to swim to shore. And then we read these words in Acts 28, 1. After we were brought safely through, that's the word Matthew uses. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that he, the island was called Malta. I find it interesting that Matthew uses a word to metaphorically describe healing sick people that can be used to describe passengers of a ship being brought safely through a dangerous journey at sea right after... He describes Jesus saving his difficulties, saving his disciples from a difficult journey at sea, where at least one of his disciples nearly drowned. In any case, Jesus saved from sickness everyone who came to him, even if their faith was small and convoluted. Jesus is truly remarkable, isn't he? He is Yahweh, the great I Am. God in the flesh. He is the God who comes to live with His people. He is the God who comes to save His people from their sins. This story is meant to show us how Jesus saves sinking disciples. As far as we know, this is the only time Jesus walked on water. Why did He do it this one time? Well, it seems that He wanted to reveal something to His disciples before he'd make his final journey into Jerusalem to offer himself as the Passover lamb to be sacrificed for our sins, 
John's Gospel tells us that this happened during Passover season. He wanted to show His disciples that He is Emmanuel, God with us and for us. That's who would be going to the cross. That's who would be saving us from our sins. Peter says something interesting in his second letter. In 2 Peter 2.9 we read, The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. Interestingly, this doesn't always mean that He removes us from the stressful situation or from the suffering. As commentator Dale Bruner writes, Matthew wants readers to know that the saving presence of God does not consist in banishing storms, but in being present in them. Jesus does not promise that we won't face trials. Indeed, He promises that we will definitely go through trials and tribulation. We will face suffering and persecution of all kinds. Recall that Jesus sent the disciples out onto the sea where they would face the wind. Whether or not He ever intended that the disciples would get out of the boat, Jesus definitely intended to show Himself to them as the God who is worthy of their worship because He is the God who saves sinners. After Paul speaks of how he endured persecutions and suffering of various kinds at different places, he writes in 2 Timothy 3.11, Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Well, which is it, Paul? Did you endure persecutions? Or did the Lord rescue you from persecutions? And then in chapter 4, verse 18, he expresses his confidence for the future. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into His heavenly kingdom. So did the Lord rescue him from the evil deed of having his head chopped off? Can we think of salvation in terms of God's presence with us? No matter what happens to us, if God is with us in our suffering, can we see that He is saving us even in and through our suffering? If God promises to use every bit of our suffering to produce eternal glory, isn't that productive work part of our salvation? Finally, let me say a word about Christian doubting and Christian fear. We see the disciples fearing because they don't recognize Jesus. We see Peter doubting even after Jesus speaks to him. And then we see Peter fearing the strong wind that threatened him in his vulnerability outside the safety of the boat. The remedy for doubt and fear is knowing Jesus as He really is. Jesus presents Himself to the disciples' fear as God in the flesh. Jesus presents Himself to the disciples' doubt as the commanding Lord. And Jesus presents Himself to Peter's fear as the Savior of the perishing. The Scriptures paint a picture of Jesus as all-powerful. He can walk on the sea. And not just calm, still waters, but a raging sea driven by gale-force winds. The sea bows to Him. 
Jesus saves Peter from drowning, even as Peter was overwhelmed with doubt and fear. Doubt about whether it was really Jesus in front of him and fear stirred by threatening circumstances. Do you think your doubts and your fears put an obstacle in the way of Jesus accomplishing your salvation? If our spiritual growth, our sanctification is part of our salvation, then we must see here our Savior's omnipotence on display. And we must recognize that our weakness, our confusion, our failures, our doubts, our fears, and even our sin cannot stop Jesus from working in our lives. Certainly, Jesus doesn't want us to experience uncertainty about who He is. He doesn't want us to have second thoughts about following Him. And He doesn't want us to live in fear or to be controlled by our fears. He calls us to trust Him more. How can we overcome our doubts? How can we grow in our faith? Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith, the author of Hebrews tells us. That is to say... Jesus starts up our faith and brings it to its proper completion. Paul says that the word of Christ is the source of our faith in Romans 10. So to have our faith strengthened, we need to go to the source. Peter needed to hear Jesus' word and believe it. Instead, he heard Jesus' word and doubted it. If you find yourself doubting that God is really good, that God really loves you, or that God has really forgiven you, that God is really with you, go back to the source. Look again at the gospel. As Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.8, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David as preached in my gospel. Even in this story, taking the whole passage in, we see a picture of the gospel. Jesus had been up on the mountain praying, communing with His heavenly Father, while His disciples were floundering out on the sea in need of rescue. So Jesus comes down from the mountain, walks out onto the threatening sea in the middle of the night, and just before dawn, He saves drowning Peter from a watery grave. And the disciples worship him in response. Do you see it? Do you hear the parallel with the gospel story itself? The eternal Son of God had experienced eternal, unbroken fellowship with his Father in heaven. Humanity was living in rebellion against God, and even God's people were under God's judgment, living in the darkness of exile. So, The Son of God took on human flesh, entered into the darkness of this world, faced off against the threatening evil powers of Satan, sin, and death, and triumphed over them all through His death and resurrection. Then rising, in rising from the dead, He reaches into the dead hearts of sinners and gives them life by His Spirit raising them to new life as they trust in Him. 
then they begin to live an eternal life of faith and worship. This is the story of our salvation. Sinner in need of rescue, won't you cry out to the Lord? He lives today. He can hear your cry. And He will save you, even if you don't have it all figured out. Trust Him. Worship Him. And live forever with Him. Would you pray with me? Father, thank You for this story recorded only by Matthew, at least in part. Help us to look closely at our Savior. The salvation that He's provided for us is on display for us in this small story, but also in the larger story. As we go to our Bible repeatedly, help us to see our Savior from cover to cover He has presented to us. Help us to look for Him there. Help us to find Him there. And help us to meet with Him in a way that grows us and changes us, strengthens our faith, makes us holy. even in the worst of...